While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue, a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And my name is Andrew. And each week we talk about books, books that we haven't read yet. And we just read them, so we're going to talk about them. <laughs> They're books that, as as of the time that we talk about them, we've read. But previous to that, we had not. You know, we're not, we're not, it's not a reading in real time podcast. This week, I'm going to talk about Cujo. Oh my. I don't know why it's Cujo. It's always the... <laughs> Because when you just, if you just point a flashlight at me and tell me to name a book, like that's the one that comes to mind. I don't, I don't understand why. I don't, I think mine might be like Cat in the Hat. Like if you pointed at me and said, name a book, I think I would say Cat in the Hat. Is there any, does that, is that symbolic of anything or is it just? I don't know. There's probably like a BuzzFeed article about it. It's probably like. What book do you yell when someone points a flashlight at you in this hypothetical? No, top 27 books that you yell. <laughs> top 17 and a half books that you scream when your teacher calls on you on a bad day. On a bad day. Yeah, we're having bad days. We're in, we're in some bad days. It's bad day day here on Overdue. <laughs> it's Eeyore day. We're just, just, just a little down, a little down in the dumps. What have you been doing to get yourself out of the dumps, Andrew? I know you're probably um, still in the dumps, but what what would you do to get out of the dumps? Um, sometimes, sometimes drinking. Okay. But sometimes that's it's like fifty <laughs> fifty. That's gonna make it better or worse. Oh no! <laughs> Go the old Ernest Hemingway route. I see. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The Ernest Hemingway. Oh, get it. <laughs> I'm having a worse day already. How do you beat those those rainy day blues? Uh, I came home for work today. Uh, it was a frustrating day, and I, and I should just say that I've noticed that you also are drinking a beer right now. So well, like, yeah, but that's part of a. Um, I try to have a have a, something in the reserve for the show just to loosen me up okay. a little bit. I thought you were going to say this is just something you did every day, in which case we could make you feel better by talking about your alcoholism. Not that kind of show, Andrew. Okay. Um, but. I came home today and polished off a bag of chips. And I took oh, okay, a, I took so. a break from the human race to eat a bag of chips. The old eating your feelings is that is that why you texted me at like ten to eight, being like, "Yeah, we should do it at eight fifteen because you needed those fifteen minutes to just ram those chips in your face." No, I needed those fifteen minutes to eat Chinese food. <laughs> Wait, you ate Chinese food and then chips? No, I ate chips and then Chinese food. Oh. All right. No, no judgments. I got, I got home, Some judgments. and then uh, I ate those chips, and then I finished getting ready for the show, and then dinner arrived, and dinner was Chinese food. All right. And I'm feeling a little bit better. I'm excited to talk about books. Chinese food makes you feel better for a little while, and then worse for a while. Here's the after trick. That. Here's the trick. I did not finish my Chinese food. Oh really? I ate. But that's hard not to do. I ate like two thirds of it. And I started to feel bad, <laughs> so I stopped. 
Chinese food isn't like pizza. Like pizza, I would, I would almost rather just order a pizza and have them bring it to me cold because cold pizza is the best. No, cold Chinese. What are you talking about? Wait, I don't even want to talk about Chinese food anymore. What are you saying? Cold Cold pizza pizza delivery. Cold pizza is the best. Uh, It's not bad, but hot pizza. (laughs) Hot pizza is fine. I mean, I'm not saying like just just saying I'd like a cold option. No, okay. You want to call up Little Caesars and you want to say, please give me a cold and ready? I don't want to. <laughs> you want a cool and ready? I don't want to call Little Caesars or anything, but yeah, I would take a cold and ready. No, you wouldn't. No one yeah. wants that. Yeah. Give it. Give it your Ew. Some marinara sauce. Ew. Give it cold and ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to stop talking about this. Let's move on to the show proper. <laughs> What did you read this week, Craig? Uh, I read Persuasion by Jane Austen. All right. Persuade me why you read it. Oh, zero for one. (laughs) Uh, One for two. You nailed Hemingway earlier. I did do that. Back when we first started the show, actually, uh, my sister uh, recommended that we read some Jane Austen. Um, And the theater company that I do a lot of work with in town is producing another uh, story. Well, it's a book that Jane Austen wrote that is got turned into a play. That was terrible. Um, they're doing Emma, and Emma is one of Jane Austen's later books, but Persuasion is actually her last book. Now, um, is that her last book published? Published posthumously. It was published posthum- posthumously because I I think there might have been another posthumous one. But uh, Northanger Abbey, I believe. Okay, but was this like the last finished one? I know sometimes when stuff is released posthumously, there is um editor or something who has to like sand over the rough edges and and make it like publication worthy i think it's it's weird because it uh it was published like together with northanger abbey um though i think persuasion technically uh counts afterwards like from a bibliography perspective okay um but they're not like wikipedia says that it's her last completed novel so like wikipedia is pretty foolproof Well, just people really design, like Jane it's... Austen, so I'm I'm fairly certain that all the Wiki, the Wikipedia Jane Austen freaks got in there and whoa, whoa, and made it pretty uh pretty kosher. It takes all kinds, Craig. Don't just call people freaks. No, like, I don't. Casually. No, they're freaks for Jane Austen, not like in a bad way. Jane Austen freaks. <laughs> Jane Austen freaks. Tell me what you know about Jane Austen. Nothing. I know, like, nothing. Okay, that's <laughs> she, what I know too. She wrote so. <laughs> Sense and Sensibility, and she wrote Pride and Prejudice, and maybe some other books with the word "and" in the title, but I don't think so. And she did not write Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. That was another guy who used her words for it. Right. Um, she wrote books about women at the turn of the 19th century, and she's British. That's about what I know. All right. Um, so there you go. <laughs> this is a book about a woman in the early 19th century who is British. And okay. it's about men as well. Okay. That's good. Good start. It's about women and men. Yeah. Okay. Does it like... Let's, let's get into Does this. it take place on the material plane? Yes, it does. It takes place... Does time flow forwards oh, or backwards? jeez. You are the just, worst. I just need the basic facts. Time flows completely forward. Okay. I think there's one chapter where they talk about something that happened in the past. So this book is all about Lady Anne. Anne okay. Elliot. All right. I think the original title of the book may or may not have been per, uh, not 
The original title may have, may have been Persuasion. Um, it's called Persuasion. The original title may have been The Elliots, because that's okay. the name of the family. And so Anne's got two sisters, a younger sister who's kind of a brat, who's already married, and an older sister who I don't believe is married. Um, and her mother's passed away when she was younger, and their family is losing money. They're kind of hemorrhaging money. They're not, you know, they don't have a lot of funds. A new word that I learned is baronet. Do you know what okay. a baronet is? I do not. Is it like a bayonet and a bonnet? Put no, together? not at all. <laughs> it's okay. not a baby's hat. All right. And another type of hat and a sword. Oh, that's what you meant. Bit what? You threw me for a loop with that one, Andrew. Just roll roll, roll right I'll, on. I'll roll right in. Um. So her father and her sister are kind of been mismanaging family funds. And so they live in Kenwich Hall or Kenwich Hall, I think. Uh, Kellinch. Oops. Kellinch. And they can't keep the house. Like if they, he's a baronet, which means he's like the lowest rank of some nobility. So he's basically one rank above just being in the working class. So he's not like a baron. He's just like, he's like a mini baron. He's a mini baron. And that's what baronet means. Yeah. Okay. And so what they have to do to keep their house is they have to lease it out. Um, And they have to be very like coy about how they're doing it so that people don't you know, talk about it in public and yada, 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 all sorts of formalities. So uh, they decide they're going to go to Bath, um, which is a city. And not Bath. Which, well, no, they have hot, they have hot springs there and stuff. Okay. Dating all the way back to the Romans. But, uh, so they're going to go there and they're going to rent out a new place. But Anne has to spend some time with her sister first. And while she's there, uh, a relative of the admiral who's going to rent out their house um, also knows this guy, Frederick Wentworth. All right. What's his deal? Now, Frederick Wentworth is, uh, he's a captain from the Navy, right? And this is after the Napoleonic Wars. So this book is littered with Navy men who are doing nothing because the war is over. It's like a time of peace and they made a bunch of money in the war. There's a lot of like ordinary men who have higher... stature than than normal in society Mm -hmm. and about eight and a half years prior to the start of the story Anne and frederick wentworth were you know going to be together and her whole family disapproved because he was of low status and had no money sure and so that went sour and then eight and a half years later they're encountering each other again and it's super awkward now okay how old is and at this point because i know that at this point in time in this particular society a young woman's her basically her job is to get super married <laughs> super fast <laughs> and if she doesn't it's like bad right like yeah she's 27 okay and she was supposed An to old maid yeah i know she was supposed to marry this dude when she was 19 i guess and it didn't work out and then so she spends the next eight and a half years getting not super married. And basically they say that she's totally intelligent. She's plenty attractive. She's a wonderful woman. But they've all just taken – they've all just t- gotten really used to the fact that she's not married. So they're not really on the lookout for helping her out anymore. <laughs> okay. Like she's kind of on her own. 
She missed her. She missed her chance. Yeah, they're just kind of used to her being a spinster, even though she's only 27. So she hooks up with her sister, Mary, and Mary's husband, Charles. There are like four dudes named Charles in this book. I can't even <laughs> pretend to tell them apart. We'll just call everybody who's not Frederick Wentworth. We'll call them Charles. Yeah, there's a mostly that's it. <laughs> like her dad's name is Walter. A bunch of other people are named like their last name is Elliot, and there's a you know crapload of Charleses. Um, so her her sister Mary, her brother-in-law Charles, uh, Frederick Wentworth, uh, Charles's sisters Henrietta and Louisa. And maybe one other dude. I think Charles Hader. Charles. Yeah. yeah, Charles Hader, another guy from the from the Navy. They all decide to go on a trip to the city of Lyme. So they're leaving uh her sister Mary's house in Upper Cross. This is what you do. You just you just get sent places and you have to stay there for months at a time. This is just your okay. life now. Um as as a as a twenty seven year old spinster, this is what happens to you. <laughs> so you know, she's all kind of stressed out because she's going to have to spend some time with Frederick and she doesn't know what to do. Um, there's actually, there's a, what is the line that talks about this? It talks about how, you know, she's kind of stuck being with him and it it sucks because they can't even really talk about it. What did she say? Now they were as strangers, nay, worse than strangers, for they could never become acquainted. It was a perpetual estrangement. So, like, their awkward history plays such a it becomes such an obstacle to them even interacting because she's so fraught with worry over like what it means and you know they no one would approve if they started being involved again and she's sure he's not actually interested and all you know agita about that kind of stuff okay so where does persuasion come in okay so she i did not count though i should have she uses (laughs) the verb persuade a lot and what she means is kind of the ways that people persuade each other, uh, quite literally, to think certain things about either themselves or about other people. Mm-hmm. And the way that you even persuade yourself to behave certain ways. Uh, case in point, a little later in the book, the other Mr. Elliot shows up. All right. He is cousin to Anne and her sisters, and he's been estranged from the family for some reason or another, mostly because he doesn't like them. and But when he shows up in Bath after, you know, years of no one talking to him, everyone thinks he's super cool and that he's made some kind of, you know, transformation. Like he's he's over his stuff and he wants to get back in with the family. And Anne's kind of mentor, Lady Russell, who's a friend of the family, is totally convinced that uh, Mr. Elliot is going to marry Anne and that he's an upstanding gentleman, and all sorts of stuff like that. So there's constant efforts to persuade Anne to go on that course, right? And then later in the book, Anne has to... She talks about how Lady Russell had kind of persuaded herself to believe the best in Mr. Elliot, while also, you know, holding on to her beliefs about Wentworth and how unworthy he was, even though he's actually a pretty cool dude. Um so that's that's an example of of how often they talk about persuasion. The the turning point in the book, which it it's no spoiler, well it is a spoiler, but it, it should come as no surprise <laughs> that Anne and Wentworth end up together after a series okay. of 
relatively simple misfortunes. Now, do they? Does one of them have to persuade the other to do that, or do they? Is that like the decision they make, and that nobody persuades them into, or like is persuasion <laughs> something to be broken free of in this book, or do you just? It's a thing. Just, is it all just people talking, talking each other into stuff? It's a thing to acknowledge. It's a th- I think the the thesis of the book is that it is part of just human interaction. You are always kind of shaping other people's opinions of the world around you in hopes that they will align with your opinions of the world around you. Um, both of Anne's sisters are pretty catty. Like Mary especially kind of hates everything. Um, and she's a real jerk about a lot of stuff. <laughs> and they're like when Anne first goes there, Mary is acting all sick. And her, and Charles, the first Charles you meet, is like, she's totally not sick. She just does this to get attention. And Mary's like, if only she, if only he would believe that I was sick all the time, then maybe I wouldn't feel so sick. And it's just like, you know, that kind of never-ending cycle. And they're both trying to get like Anne on their side at all times. There's just lots of interactions like that. But what happens with Wentworth and Anne towards the end of the book is that, you know, Anne has learned what kind of a jerk Mr. Elliot is, and so she's totally not going to hook up with him even though she doesn't think that Wentworth cares for her. Mm-hmm. Wentworth has kind of intimated that he might care for her, but he can't come out and say it. So he overhears Anne talking to, oh, I don't even know who it was, some other guy. <laughs> I think, I don't know if it was Charles Hayter or Charles Musgrove or Admiral Croft. I think it was Admiral Croft. I'm looking at a tree of the characters in the book right now. <laughs> Thanks, Wikipedia. How many Charles is there on this Um There are at least four. Um, one of them's a kid. Okay, Charles Musgrove, Charles Hayter. Charles Musgrove Charles Jr. Charles Musgrove Jr. and then his son Charles. Yes. That's a bunch of Charles. That's a bunch of Charleses. Um, Admiral Croft and Anne are talking later in the book about constancy uh, and the idea of whether or not men or women are more constant in their love. Um, you know, and Anne makes some points about how, you know, we th- there, <laughs> there's a great quote about how there's like, you know, books upon books of examples of women being inconstant. And she's like, don't throw those at me. Those are all written by men. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, what we would really love is to actually be able to express our constant affection to, you know, one person. But since men have all the power in these dealings, we can't. And so we appear more fickle than we are. And then the guys and then uh, Admiral Croft is like, well, you don't understand because, you know, men have all these pressures in terms of career and you know, if only you could understand how we felt when we had to leave our loved ones to go away at sea and all sorts of stuff like that. And she kind of comes around agreeing with him. And meanwhile, Wentworth is supposed to be writing a letter to this other guy who for a period of time we thought Anne was going to get with, who is uh, James Benwick, but he's not around at this point. And he overhears this conversation and it persuades him into... Is that word again? Yep, into feeling like... And could actually believe uh, in his feelings for her. And that basically he, over the course of eight years, had per- tried repeatedly to persuade himself that he did not still have feelings for her. Or that his feelings for her were foolish or something like that. 
Mm. Um, I'm struggling with my headphones. I apologize. <laughs> um, and so that constancy kind of admitted on both ends, they end up together. So that's how that goes. So I, I guess I'm having trouble thinking of questions because it all, I mean, it all, I mean, persuasion is obviously a theme, um, mm-hmm. but most of the rest of it just seems like like a compendium of who's getting married to who. Like, I don't. Yeah, there's a couple. Inst- <laughs> That's what I'm getting from your synopsis is like, even though the book is written by a woman and obviously she has opinions about about like women's place in society, it still seems pretty preoccupied by like romance and who's going to marry who and like. Marriage is still a big component of these women's, like, identities. Yeah, and I don't know that she's necessarily saying that's a great thing. Sure. Um, it's, it's relatively simple on that front. The plot is pretty simple. It's, hey, she has to go to these places she doesn't want to go to. Oh, and she meets these people that she kind of likes and gets, you know, kind of disconnected from her family drama. But then she gets caught up in all the new drama with her new friends. And then she gets stuck with her family. And then all the new drama shows up with Mr. Elliot coming and and trying to get with her, but he's probably only wants to do it for money. And then she gets with Wentworth. Like, if I had, I could boil the book down to that, which is kind of cutting it, not cutting it enough slack, because it's kind of peppered with a lot of these really interesting observations about how people feel in relationships. Do you have some of those observations for us? Yeah, I'm trying to find them. Um, there's a period of time where Wentworth, they, you know, they're in this city of Lyme, and Wentworth is hanging out with some some of his friends from the Navy and the women that know them, and she's watching him kind of interact with these people and, and how lovely it is and, you know, how great. And she has this realization that she says, these would have been all my friends was her thought and she had to struggle against a great tendency to lowness uh which i thought was just a great little nugget of when you are either encountering someone you used to date or someone you had feelings for and you know it's not going to happen but you kind of at least in this point she thinks it's never going to happen you know and kind of envision that alternate life ahead of you you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah um, I think the, the lowness thing is a, is a nice turn of phrase. Like, it's a <laughs> yeah, there's there's lots of stuff like that. Um, there's another one. Oh, there's another one where she's you know, there's the whole middle of the book is her kind of being sad that she has to be around Wentworth even though she's with these <laughs> people that she likes. And there's a period of time where she's kind of feeling bummed about it, but she still wants to go out with everyone because she doesn't want to be. Uh, isolated from the group Mm -hmm. and another you know awesome quote that i really enjoyed was her spirits wanted the solitude and silence which only numbers could give (laughs) which is that kind of feeling of like you want to be out in the group of people so you don't miss anything which also allows you to like disappear like you don't want to sit around and and either be by yourself or engage with someone Mm one-on-one you kind of just want to be at a party and wallflower it up you know yeah, right. You just want to like be around people, but you don't want to have to interact with any of them. Yeah, and I think there are lots of stories and just anecdotal, you know, 
event. Uh, that's it. That sentence ended. Um, <laughs> lots of stories. I was, I was trying to say that there were like stories actually written or, or movies or whatever, or just like people I've known who are like, I just need to go out into the world and I don't even want to like interact. I just need to be around people because I'm feeling bad about myself or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah. Like I, I kind of get that like as somebody who works at home. Oh like, yeah. Cause I, I mean, I go out for lunch like a lot, like back when I had an office job, I just took my lunch in every day and I, that was like a opportunity for solitude actually but yeah <laughs> now that i am working you know by myself most of the time i'll just like go out to go to a cafe or a restaurant or something and just like sit and work and like bask in like reflected social interaction i guess yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there was a weird thing that happened when i uh laura and i went to the beach like two weeks ago we were just sitting on the beach for a couple hours and you do that what happens is it was like a crowded beach so we were just kind of people watching and like relaxing while listening to other people's conversations and like i couldn't even tell you what half of them were about but it was just so weird to be in that like zoo of humanity that is everyone at their most relaxed you know and some people that means that they're like totally amped up and like telling you all about their life or whoever Mm -hmm. they're talking to and for some people it's just like Oh no, yeah, you are totally just letting your kid go play with someone else's stuff. Like, you just don't care. <laughs> and you don't necessarily want to interact with those people, but you just kind of want to be out there to feel like you were out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was a good one. I, this is not so much a, a nugget of wisdom as of like funny little scene. So the book kind of paints Anne's dad as a bit of a buffoon, not like a total buffoon. But his arc is that he may or may not end up marrying this younger woman who's pretty unattractive, according to the narrator, but okay. is young. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, nice. And she's probably in it for the money, but, you know, whatever. She's not too terrible. Like, they... Wait, Does he have money? Like, he has to lend out his house, right? Yeah, he has enough. They still have, like... Okay, so later, little tangent. Later in the book... They're in their reduced house in the city of Bath, right? Because okay. they're making money off the Admiral renting out Kellynch. So they still have some money. They just can't keep spending it in their big house. And so they're like, Anne's sister Elizabeth doesn't want to have anyone over for dinner because she's too ashamed that they will see the reduced number of servants that they're using. Okay. Like It's like, we can't have a big enough dinner so no one can come over for dinner. I get really embarrassed about that too. Like when I invite people over and like some of my servants are gone and people, people just like think that that's the number of servants I have. Like zero. I really, I really yeah. Like I really lose face because they're going to be like, they're not going to say anything. Or when like you have to too... drive yourself to the Panera. Yeah. The like they're, they're the people are, my guests would be too repressed to say anything, but you knew, you know, they would go home and they would, they, you know, while they were taking their powdered wigs off, they would talk about just like how few servants I had. It would be just <laughs> humiliating. Anyway, I'm just identifying with the struggles no, of the characters in the book. True. These are these are real real issues that resonate 300 years later, or yeah, just 200 years. Yeah, later. that's that's what I really like about some of the books is they the issues are still relevant. Yeah, they're today. yeah they're contemporary problems. um so mr elliot uh as they're living in uh bath 
was hanging out with his buddy Colonel Wallace. And he's really excited because um, he thinks Colonel Wallace's wife is kind of hot. Now, let me just say that Colonel Wallace is like the name of a town drunkard and he's not actually the colonel of anything. Let's, but people just call him the colonel. Let's also remark that the Dowager Countess is named Lady Dalrymple. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, like cartoon villainous if there ever was one. <laughs> yeah, she's going to find like 101 dogs and try and skin them to make coats out of them. <laughs> so... Sir Walter thought much of Mrs. Wallace, wrote Jane Austen. She was said to be an excessively pretty woman, beautiful. He longed to see her. He hoped she might make amends for the many very plain faces he was continually passing in the streets. <laughs> the worst of Bath was the number of its plain women. He did not mean to say that there were no pretty women, but the number of the plain was out of all proportion. <laughs> it's like devotes like a whole page to how ugly... Sir Walter thinks all the women of Bath are. Yeah, and I, I'm sure that's, I don't know, that's like Jane Austen kind of making fun of him. Yes, I think so. Because it sounds like his character's kind of a schmuck. But. From from what I understand, Jane Austen spent a couple years in Bath, uh, like, against her will. <laughs> like, oh, man. Her dad, like, basically, like, kind of like Anne, uh, her dad was like, hey, we got to move to Bath for a little while. So suck it up. Let's go. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to. But still, there certainly were a dreadful multitude of ugly women in Bath, and as for the men, they were infinitely worse. Such scarecrows as the streets were full of. I love it. Jeez. Um, it's great. It's that's wonderful. That's Slayer. That's rough. Yeah. Um. So the other is unrelated, but the other anecdote from this book, the other you know pivotal moment in this book which is in the middle when they're hanging out in that city of Lyme, right? And it's like the cast of Friends is all hanging out. Like the Charleses and Mr. Wentworth and Joey's there, Joey's there and uh, Tom Selleck stopped by, you know. And uh, they're walking around and they're like walking on top of this hill and it's too windy for all the ladies. So they're going to go down these stairs. <laughs> And at this point, Wentworth is hanging out with uh, Charles Musgrove's sister, I think. Charles Musgrove's sister, Henrietta. He's hanging out with Henrietta. So Anne is worried that you know, Wentworth is into Henrietta. We're not sure. Mm-hmm. But then he's also hanging out with Louisa. We're not sure which one's going to get Mr. Wentworth. So Louisa is totally into like having people carry her downstairs. Or something like like she like likes jumping down these like tall outdoor staircases kind of thing. It doesn't really make sense. And so he make she, you know she's making Wentworth like help her down from heights all the time, whereas all the other women are totally capable of handling themselves. And she does it, and she has, you know he catches her, and it's really fun. And then she's like, oh, "I'm gonna do it again." He's like, "No, I I really don't think that you should." And then she does it again, and she jumped too soon, and he drops her. And then she spends like six months in bed, like from a severe concussion. <laughs> Whoops. And, you know, there's all sorts of drama of like, oh, Wentworth's really broken up about it because he totally dropped her. And Anne doesn't know if that means that he loves her. But then there's this other guy, Benwick, who's this like quiet, sensitive, read po- reads poetry type who Anne's not sure if she's going to get with. And then surprise, surprise, Benwick ends up with 
Louisa, the you know broken woman now who hit her Is head it on the floor. One of those things where like everybody ends up happy at the end, sort like, of, or at least everybody ends up married at the end. Not everyone ends up married. Um, Benwick is a really interesting character because he is from the Navy, but they all describe him as this kind of like different version of manhood. Like he's a lot more sensitive. He is very quiet all the time. But if you get him talking about poetry, he won't shut up about it kind of thing. Um, Contrasting him with the more like uh, conventional manhood that is Mr. Wentworth. Yeah, because everybody else is just in the Navy and super macho. Yeah, super macho, but like... They're military men. Totally cool about it. You know, they're pleasant guys. Um, there's one quote where uh, Anne remarks on how when Wentworth would sit down with them, he like vastly improved their conversation. You know, just like knowing when to say the right thing and when to, you know, back off. It was funny, I was reading that section thinking about uh, a conversation I'd had the other day with people who were mad about people posting baby pictures on Facebook okay, and like social etiquette on Facebook and like people who spam it with all sorts of photos of their family or they, you know, post articles too many times. And it was interesting to, to hear Jane Austen kind of like comment on the skills of good conversation. Cause, Cause, he's not saying that like he's a cool guy and everybody like being around him, but he was like good at saying the right stuff at the right time. Yeah, there's like there's plenty of cool guys that people like and think are attractive, but like if you don't know how to bring up the right topic or when to move on to the next topic, or because if this is all you do all day is like sup and walk places and talk, you better get good at it. You better be good at talking, <laughs> or else you ain't gonna get married. And you're not going to have hardly any servants, and it's just going to be embarrassing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, to answer your question earlier, pretty much everyone ends up together with someone. I don't think Henrietta ends oh. up with someone. Um, creepy Mr. Elliot doesn't get with anyone. And uh, Miss Clay, who was after buffoon Sir Walter Elliot, doesn't get with anyone. But... Everyone comes around to Mr. Wentworth, even though they were trying to set Wentworth up with Elizabeth. And, yeah, I think that's it with regards to that. Yeah. He even helps Anne's friend get some property back from India. Oh, nice. You know, that's like the subplot about why Mr. Elliot is a big jerk. He, like, <laughs> screwed He screwed uh, Anne's friend's late husband out of some money and, you know, all sorts of bad stuff like that. When when all you have to worry about is like property, like that is how you make and keep money, it becomes very important, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked it. So I, this is, I guess, the the one thing before we move on to like summarizing it is like okay. the one thing that I am not really getting from the synopsis, and maybe you don't even know. Okay, is like I can't tell if Jane Austen is like is like poking fun at this whole like societal construction where like everybody's always preoccupied with who's going to be marrying whom like it seems kind of subversive yes i think it is it's like subversive within like it's subverting people's expectations about the way the society works but not really challenging the way the society works does that make sense well yeah i think it's it's holding a light up to it without casting too overt a judgment 
I don't okay. I don't know if in you know the late 1700s early 1800s a book like that could have gotten published if it was outright you know calling the whole system out sure you know um but i think at least from this book and you know folks who've read plenty of jane austen please write in and tell us what we're missing <laughs> i'm sure they're there i'm sure tons. everybody has read more jane austen than us. um but i think what is interesting about it is that it is it's satire without being like overt about you're right it's subtle it's it's subversive in the sense that here's what everyone's concerned about and here's what everyone thinks all the time everyone is concerned about relationship jockeying and familial relations there's one it's like and it's all the slightest stuff means everything to these people Mm -hmm. um you know glances get talked about for like pages um the uh when I mentioned Lady Dalrymple earlier, there's like a whole big to do about how she's going to come visit. And the whole reason that they are kind of estranged from Lady Dalrymple is that at one point she had a relation pass away. And because, Mr. you know, Sir Elliot was sick at the time, his letter didn't get sent. And so then they got all pissy about it and didn't send a letter when Sir Walter's wife passed away. And this means that we all have to be very careful when we see them. Because everybody's like so repressed that nobody can come out and say anything about anything. Like it's all, it's just all subtext. It is, all oh, the time. it is all subtext. Like <laughs> to the point of just how people even say things. I could not, like I could not count the times that they said the word persuade or persuasion. I don't think I could count the number of like double negatives slash lightotes that are in this book. Because like... <laughs> There's like I highlighted one like Mr. Elliot does not dislike his cousin. I fancy they talk about whenever people um, would be up for doing something. It's like if you were I was like if I was like Andrew Andrew would not be sorry to come to Panera with me. You know, <laughs> like it's we we don't express anything with overt positive emotion. It's not that I would like it. It's that I would not like it. He would not like to come with me. It's like you can't you can't be that overt about your feeling. Um and so any little hint that you give me that you might be excited to come to Panera, I'm going to sit and think about it for ages and think about whether or not I said the right thing. Um there's lots of interruptions in the book where like later when when it's really coming to a head about whether or not Wentworth and Anne are going to get together, Wentworth says like Wow, eight and a half years is really a long time. And then someone comes and like swoops them away to another conversation. And then so she, she spends like two pages thinking about what he said, and all he said was like eight words. Um, so yeah, th- I think that repression is is part of what Austin's after, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, and yet I'll still say I got caught up in it like a soap opera. I was kind of you liked it. I I kind of wanted to see what was gonna happen. It took like. Six, That's, there's no shame in that. It took Come like on. six chapters to really get going because it took me like three to figure out who the main character was going to be. Like it took such a long time to set up the family that I wasn't sure it was going to be a book about Anne. Okay. And then once she bumped into Wentworth again and I was like, oh, snap, it's on. Then the story starts moving. Um, 
And then the latter half of the book feels like a, a once they get to Bath, it's like a whole it's kind of like a whole different book because she's worrying about these other guys and um but I was definitely interested a lot more than I thought I would be. I'll give it that. Well, great. Um, Do you have anything, any any closing thoughts before we about before persuasion? We wrap it up? Yeah, about persuasion. Because I think we have some some reader mail. We do have some reader mail. Um, I don't know that I have any closing thoughts. I I think this was a good gateway into Austin for me because I think uh, the other books are so widely renowned. Um, and she only had like six or seven full novels, so. Um, I think tackling one that I had, I don't even necessarily know what the other books are about. <laughs> I'll confess that much. <laughs> uh, but tackling one that to me felt a little off to the side was helpful. Um, yeah, no, I can, I can totally see that. And if you ever did read some Vonnegut for the show, it might even be good to like find one that's a little less. I don't know. Like if you just jump right into Slaughterhouse Five, like that's that's great and it's a great story, but it can be a little intimidating just to go right to the big stuff instead of yeah. And and what I was reading about um, persuasion and that it was a late novel for her, uh, kind of intimated that she didn't get to go through it with a fine tooth comb. Sure. Um, so there are parts of it that feel a little long in in, in spots, but. I would I'd be interested to kind of read what people consider, you know, the best of her work now. Mm-hmm. Now that I kind of see what she's up to. Um, it's interesting. I dug it. Great. Um, but yeah, before we go, we had some we had some listener mail. Uh, my sister, actually, as I mentioned before. Uh, she wrote in and it's a pretty long question, so I'll try to summarize. She was realist she was finishing up our, our color purple episode. And she was remarking on the fact that it was written in the eighties, even though it was set in the thirties. Okay. And she just kind of wanted our thoughts on, excuse me, the contemporary period affecting what any given work of historical fiction is about. You know, she seems that she was noting that feminism and sexuality seem to be the more dominant themes in the color purple than race. Kind of even what you were talking about, if you can remember all the way back mm-hmm. to Color Purple. Yeah, yeah. No, I know I do. Um, I mean, race was definitely a thing about it, but I think that's... I, I'm not sure if that's a reflection of just how our conversation went or about like what the book is actually about. Yeah, Go yeah. Go ahead. Um, and that, that might have been kind of reflective of the 80s and what was going on then, uh, much more so than what the actual like historical topics of the book were. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what makes historical fiction difficult, right? Is like we have the benefit of hindsight. We we know how stuff kind of goes. And I like I really like Mad Men, for example. But yeah. I read some criticisms of it that that have said that it's, you know, pretty self-congratulatory about about like the women on the show. Like oh, there, yeah. there are aspects of how it treats women that are like, oh, look how great we are now. Look how far we've come. And it, like, yeah, like it goes, it like goes it kinda, too it far kinda, in the direction of positive treatment of women in a way. No, like it just it's especially in those really early episodes where everybody just treats women like oh know, okay doormats like sexy doormats. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like 
you know, the show is just is just trying to be like, oh, weren't these people savages and weren't they so terrible? And it's I don't know it. it it's difficult to to do real historical fiction because inevitably, like modern experience will will taint it. Well, I I, I think that's that seems to be the point of historical fiction, at least the books that we've read, right? Yeah. Um. You know. And then there's that other kind of historical fiction where it's like, oh, what if somebody liked Hitler's paintings, and what would the world be like? <laughs> I don't know if she's talking about that kind. No, of... <laughs> that's different. Um, I think she's talking more about kind of like the crucible, right? We talked about that with the crucible. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was, you know, you don't you you write that play in the McCarthy era so that you can talk about the McCarthy era without actually talking about it. Um, yeah. You. I was I was going back through some of the other books that we've read. You know, you know, the less a lesson before dying was written in the nineties, even though it's set, you know, pre World War Two in the South. Um, I don't know that that. I could I couldn't tell you what in the '90s that might have been about, except maybe anxiety over the death penalty. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was trying to read up a little bit on that, and I couldn't find anything. Um, when we did War of the Worlds, that wasn't quite historical. It was like future fiction. It wasn't. I mean, that's science. That's fiction. that's a that's, lot of. I what mean, that has science a, fiction that does. has yeah. Good science fiction uses like fantastical scenarios to comment on modern day stuff but with historical fiction in particular it's i guess in in some respects history does repeat itself and it is kind of cyclical and historical fiction can often use that to its advantage right yeah yeah i to to you know tie something together thematically i think it's also part of why when i was reading antony and cleopatra i was like i don't know what to do with this play and if you were going to do that play now you can't do that play in a vacuum you know any of those older plays you do because you think it means something to people watching it now. Right. Like that's why you do Mad Men because you think that that story says something to the people who are watching it now. Like you're not making that story and then time traveling it back to when Mad Men took place and creating some sort of, you know, modern television series in the sixties. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and then I was also I was thinking about Grendel too, not not that that's historical fiction, but the idea that he took something from the past and kind of remixed it to say something about stories that were taking place in the twentieth century. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a it's food for thought. Yeah, and it's and I I always kind of. I mean, this is, this is going to be a conversation that probably just goes into a blind alley, but I always, I always kind of wonder because I, I mean, I write, but I don't write fiction. And I always like when people make a decision to, to write historical fiction or write an epistolary novel or something like what, I don't know. How do they come to the decision that that's what's best for the story? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. You know, you know, I was working on a place set in the, 60s or like just before 1960 um about people who were in world war one but it was written in the early 2000s that's like three generations of lenses through which to view characters you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah um and i don't know why you know there's reasons to do that story now that relate to veterans coming out of the current wars and there are reasons that it should be men 
before the 60s because of where society is then and it, it's different if it's world war one vets versus world war two vets like context is everything you know yeah um, well i mean i don't i don't i wonder if the fact that we've you know kind of in the last decade and change like lost the last remaining you know living memory of that war yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and i don't know if that has anything to do with it or, or not that, that's what that's, was so it's another factor to consider you know yeah that's what was so interesting reading um oh god what's that book called all all quiet on the western front right um mm-hmm. and that and uh of mice and men are not historical fiction as much as they are contemporary fiction that just is happens to be old <laughs> <laughs> which is which is very different, you know. Yes, yeah, yeah. In the same way that Jane Austen is old fiction, it's not talking about a prior time; it's talking about the current time. It is using the prior time to comment on the prior time. That's about it. Yep, we're not <laughs> we're not traveling through time to talk about yeah. now. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. Um, we can say that if you have reader mail that you would like to get to us if you if you have a pressing question you'd like us to discuss um you can tweet it at us we are on twitter as um at overdue pod we're also um on facebook at facebook.com slash overdue pod and we've got an email address which is overdue pod at gmail.com you can also find us at www.overduepodcast.com where you can subscribe using our rss feed or head on over to our itunes page where you can subscribe uh, through that service or rate and review us which we would greatly appreciate uh, you can also find all the back episodes there as well and if you are looking for another way to support us you could check out the amazon links on overduepodcast.com and those are links to the books that we are reading the books we've read and the next two books that we are reading uh, and you can click on those to purchase the book or kind of click through those uh, for some of your amazon shopping needs and it helps support us for hosting another uh supplies that we might need yeah. and i wanted to say that i think between this episode and the last episode i noticed on itunes that we had finally gotten enough ratings and reviews to like have a star rating post. yeah <laughs> so yeah as far as i know i'm not going to go back and check again because i don't want it not to be true but last time i looked we had five out of five stars so thanks for that that there is we could not make this podcast better if we wanted to. <laughs> It is as good as it is possible for a podcast. Uh, but we will so. keep making more of it. So please tune in next week. What are you reading yeah. for next week? Oh, what am I reading for next week? I am reading uh, Dave Eggers' You Shall Know Our Velocity! Exclamation point. Great. I read that book in high school, and I don't know if I would like it now, and I'll be interested to see if you like it now. We're going to talk about it. Great. Because that's, that's what we do. That's what we do. We talk about books. <laughs> we'll see you next week. In case you hadn't known. All right, everybody, try to be happy. Try to be happy.